So my relationship with porn started at a very, very young age. In fact, I was about four years old. Pornography is often compared to crack cocaine. And now video gaming is an internationally recognized addiction according to the World Health Organization. Substance use disorder is a major public health crisis. This is 9-11 happening every 10 days. The heroin overdose. So, Brock, what the fuck is happening in that video? Um, <clears throat> something terrifying, honestly. Because <laughs> it's such a, uh, I don't know, it's such an upsetting thing to sit and watch some of that stuff happen. And, like, honestly, I believe in it. Like, I believe in some of that stuff. I do think it's convenient that we focus on these, like, aspects of, you know, looking at this type of behavior and, and trying to use it as some, like, characterization of, of a complex uh, field or idea or drug use or whatever. I mean, you're taking a ton of different things that we use, you know, drugs and things for and applying it to a bunch of people who obviously have mental health issues and all kinds right. of other issues that they're, they're coping with in whatever way. But to me, that video is still evidence of this underlying um, mismatch of our environment, our modern environment with how we feel inside our motivators, what we want, what we want from life. And mm -hmm. I think that we, all of us are compensating in some way. We're all trying to find some one, some way to make things feel, I don't know, more connected to us or something like that. And I think obviously those people have chosen a route that has led to, I don't, cause I don't think anybody would want to end up like that. You know, we talk about right. drug responsible drug use or whatever. We talk about drug use and like no one starts doing drugs thinking, well, maybe that'll happen. You know, maybe that feels great. Maybe it looks, maybe it's super fun to end up one of those people on the street. Um, so that's obviously, these are, these are worst case scenarios for this kind of thing, but I don't think it's just the slippery slope of just using or accepting drugs in general as a society. Hey everybody, it's Andre joined by my co-host Levan. Thank you so much for supporting Radius of Reason. And I really hope you're enjoying this discussion with Brock. Don't forget to subscribe, hit the like button and leave a comment below. Let us know what you think about drugs. Yeah, I mean, you describe like a very nuanced perspective on this clearly because you, you've had training, you, you think about this a lot. But I mean, the immediate reaction, I think that, that, that the layman has, and certainly when I saw that clip for the first time, when the story kind of started going viral last summer, it was like, oh my God, like America is falling apart. Uh, you know, we have drug addicts on the street and the damn liberals are letting this happen. I mean, that was, you know, my particular narrative, but I, I know you could just see it in the comments section. Uh, of videos like this, you know, this is from Philadelphia, similar stories popping up, you know, all over the country, lately, Oregon, and uh, Portland's been getting a lot of heat for this. But there doesn't seem to be like, a nuanced understanding of why the hell, you know, we have these like, very alarming tiers of crisis related to addiction in the country. I mean, do you think there's like any popular uh, awareness of like the compounding factors that result in somebody on the street taking trank, shooting up heroin, things along those lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I live in San Francisco, right? We have a huge fentanyl issue. I mean, I was surprised. I'm I'm uh, teaching actually this week about some drug stuff, and I, you know, I was I, I, one of the things that stood out to me recently is a uh, that in 2020 during a, a global pandemic, right? This massive event, you know, where people are dying on an accelerated rate the number one cause of death between 18 and 45 was fentanyl overdose. Like mm. that's, that's an incredible statistic. 
And I really think that it underlies like why, like it's not just fitness, like we are sitting in our houses, right? This isn't just, you're not just on the street and we're all like walking around and people are just giving each other fitness and we're all like, ah. <laughs> like this isn't a party drug, you know, this is people sitting inside sad and going, how can I deal with this? Mm -hmm. um, and people going, well, maybe try this thing. It'll make it all go away. And then you, you know, do this thing. And I think the, the drug is a, and fentanyl being one of the worst examples of this is a compensatory thing for something that you feel is lacking, right? It's mm -hmm. feeling it's, it's a, um, like I said, it's kind of, it's a mismatch between your physiological, like in you know, the internal environment you have and this bizarre society that we've created, this modern mm -hmm. thing of technology and, you know, uh, going back to our last talk that we had, um, you know, capitalist kind of stuff that we've, that we've just thrown all this stuff together and it doesn't, it doesn't inherently, I'm not saying we can't handle it, right? It's not that humans can't handle what we're doing. It's just that it is such a, a mismatch and it's made all of these things that with these underlying motivators and things that our instincts were built off of, and it's using, it's perverting them in a weird way. And so we, we are trying to compensate with this by taking drugs as almost like a taking bad drugs, right? Taking bad drugs um, as a way of, you know, just trying to throw something at the wall to make yourself feel better. Drugs are like the ultimate way of going, I can't make my brain stop feeling bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take this thing that makes me temporarily not feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Brock, that do you think? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do, do you think um, e even just uh, more mild, let's say, recreational drugs like marijuana are also problematic in the sense that you know, they're taking advantage of kind of this evolutionary mismatch in our environments. Uh, you know, in the past, the, the, the emotions that drugs target uh, were responsible for signaling like gains in fitness, right? You were happy or you were rewarded for eating or finding a mate or whatever it was. But now you're kind of bypassing those, uh, you know, evolutionary um, rewards evolutionarily based rewards and now you are just kind of entering a hu purely hedonic state which then in a sense could be like you know demotivating and so you know we're looking at harsher harsher drugs you know the opioid um you know pen epidemic and, and everything but like what about things like marijuana i mean are are those okay to use too uh, is there going to be a wider societal consequence as a result like a collective societal harm if we've got people demotivated due to drugs um sure. like what what is your take uh on, on that wider issue no i agree i mean they, these things all have trade-offs right i think that whenever um i always wanted to do this large store large like scale study that where you could basically and a lot of this stuff comes back to chronic stress right right where you could see people that use uh, that smoke pot regularly or even honestly cigarettes which is like the you know you, nobody advocates for cigarettes, <laughs> but um, to see to do this like large scale study where you could see um, an offset of how these like what the compensatory thing is, right? Because it is don't get me wrong, um, you know, smoking weed is messing up our dopamine systems, but so is our addiction to our phones mm -hmm. and right. video games and streaming television and all this bullshit that we're constantly like just inundating ourselves with all the time, right? And our our dopamine system is just fucked it's just all over the place and um and weed is definitely one of those contributing factors i uh, these things are all consequential but i try to see it as like 
what offsets what, right? Like one of the most important concepts in biology and physio physiology specifically is what's called homeostasis, right? It's your body's ability to um, compensate in a dynamic environment uh, to keep internal like regulation, right? And, mm -hmm. and this, a lot of this is mundane, boring shit, right? Like you're, you, you, you need to keep your calcium levels like very highly regulated, your phosphorus levels, your breathing rate, your, you know, blood glucose levels, all these things have to maintain a seesaw in your body of like, okay, if it gets, I mean, you could honestly uh, argue that a good definition for disease is something that falls outside of like a homeostatic balance for too long, a system that's moved out of a, you know, and that's how kind of how we define like a disorder or a disease. Um, and I think that there are certain things that we do with our lifestyles that are throwing so much stuff out of a homeostatic dysregulation. And I think a lot of our modern environment really masks a lot of how we're being dysregulated in the sense of like, if you woke up tomorrow and you just had really low cortisol levels or adrenaline levels, like you would know it, you would feel it. You'd have low energy that day. I'm sure all of us have those days, right? We just wake up and you're like, it's going to be one of those days. Um, and like, you know, that kind of thing, you may not know it specifically cortisol or whatever, right? But it's a thing. But when you have micro changes in cortisol um, over months or years that are just kind of ticking away and changing that system and making it worse or, or deactivated in certain ways, mm -hmm. it's, it's much easier to mask that and not you don't know that's happening to you. But it's also a much bigger long term thing. Like you are changing to a lower energy person or a less motivated person like your dopamine system, which is what like today when we're talking about drug use like drugs are all centered around like what's called like your dopamine um, reward pathway, right? It's a pathway mm -hmm. uh, in the brain that specifically has a bunch of different like uh, areas of the brain, nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area and stuff that are all like regulating dopamine use. And like, we think of them a lot as reward in the sense of like, you know, you give, you, you inject dopamine straight into these areas and this, per ah, yay, rah, I want to, but, but realistically that doesn't, inherently makes sense in like a, I don't know, an evolutionary past where you think about why would, why would we care that much about being like rewarded by certain things, but it makes much more sense sense in the context. If you think of it, uh, about it as a motivational system, right? That's where, that's really how we look at dopamine as like a carrot on a stick kind of thing, right? It's what makes you want to keep living. It's what makes you want to have certain behaviors that you should follow and go through. It's what makes you want to find a mate or want to, you know, socialize in a group or whatever. And so we, we've caused a lot of homeo, uh, homeostatic dysregulation to this system. And it's causing so much, um, like it's causing a lot of gaps in our life. I think that are, we're, we're not, we're not knowing exactly like you don't feel them happening. You don't know why they're happening. You don't know, like we all know our phones are kind of bad for us, but we still use them and we don't see it as like, but yeah, and we, you don't directly are able to correlate. Like I'm using my phone right now. And that is genuinely causing long-term damage to my like motivational system. That's making me so, like life. So that's, now. that's a really important point that you made because I mean, right now with what you're describing the phone usage, you mentioned earlier, you know, people coping in a similar manner, playing video games, uh, you know, becoming addicted to pornography and sex, food addiction, but none of these uh, maybe habitual responses to some of the problems in our life are being taken as like hysterically as um, somebody shooting up heroin on a street corner, which it's kind of like stating the obvious, but what to you kind of emphasizes the alarm and panic around 
some of these substances. I mean, for me, a lot of it comes down to the fact that it leads to death and that people are dying of uh, opioid abuses. You know, we talked about the coast, but I mean, we're not even touching the scale of the problem in the Midwest and some of the industri- former industrial cities that got deindustrialized. But to me, it seems like we can't really make the same correlation as video games or pornography because ultimately speaking, there are people dying from this. So should we be treating, I mean, there's often this conversation of, oh yeah, you know, like we should treat all addictions the same. Coffee addiction equals uh, trank addiction, right? But not really. And, and, and that's not necessarily a wrong perspective. What do you think? Um, no, I agree. I mean, like it's so much of these things are so like drug drugs are just when you like seeing someone like in the video, right? Like mm-hmm. the trank video and fentanyl, seeing people on the streets doing these things. It's such a black and white and it's such an American thing. I mean, <laughs> like America just needs, they, they can't accept complex answers to problems. They just can't. It's why I, I've almost given up on assuming that we could ever do anything about climate stuff because it's such a complex problem and you're just never, Americans are like, what's the one thing I can do? What's the mm-hmm. one answer? And it's like, mm-hmm. there's not one. There's a lot of, but drugs are such an easy, convenient way of going, ah, see, that's a look. Look, you did the thing. They're doing drugs, and now look what look at them. Look at them. You can visibly see, I can drive past that group of people and see that they are fucked up, and it's because of drugs. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not mm-hmm. because we have no mental health facilities in America mm-hmm. that actually help to try and facilitate these things, or that we're all like kind of not sure what to do, and we compensate in all kinds of crazy, weird ways. Like the 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 underlying damage, like that we're doing to our health with like diet. Right. We all know we're in an obesity epidemic and stuff. And like they know that's bad. But like you don't think about some of the effects that that might be having on you mentally as well and all these different things that we're doing with our diet. And but it's a complex thing. Right. It's a really complex thing to imagine. Um, One of the things I like to ask, like my students, sometimes we're talking about like kind of critical issues is like, is milk healthy? Like as a question, is milk healthy? And you see all of them go yeah no yes no and you just (laughs) like oh it has calcium but then it's also really high in sugar and it's got a weird and there's just things like that like you don't know a lot of times where what is good or bad with these things so they're much more subtle and they have much more subtle complex answers and that's that's really the reality of it too um and i think drugs fit into that thing too it's so easy to look at uh, somebody on the street. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to d- downplay that thing. Fentanyl especially has become a massive crisis that we're all facing. But I think the underlying motivator that makes someone take, start the path towards fentanyl abuse, uh, you know, of what is ultimately going to become fentanyl abuse, um, is still a lot of the same drives that drive people to overeat, or to go seek out too many sexual partners or get addicted to porn or video mm-hmm, games. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is from this underlying thing that we all feel, oh, I, I need something. I, there's something here I need to try and fill it with this thing because I can't do it myself. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit more, Brock, some of these underlying drivers of, of addiction and, and, and tendencies and predispositions to use drugs. Um, I, I always you know, try to look at what the most important aspects of human nature are to to kind of go to first principles you know and and consider things from that perspective and i think about like human relationships right i think about how we're social creatures and that's that is just the fundamentally the most important thing about us and then i think about the society that we've created now (laughs) you know and i think about 
well, you talk about a mismatch in environments, you know, um, you know, there's a loneliness epidemic. I mean, we were even before COVID, we were trending towards just becoming like digitized almost where our entire world or the vast majority of our experience was now through a screen. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about, you know, why people are doing things and how we can solve them, like even just having like additional mental health resources, clinics, um, education, like all those things, I don't see them as nearly sufficient because the core structure of society is antithetical to human nature in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, no, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Right. And, and where do you go from that? such a, you know, like, Oh, we should just redesign society to make more sense with our, like it's, I was watching a documentary the other day about um, like early tribal groups, like um, other other proto humans that used to exist alongside us, right? And I was just thinking about like those humans, genetically, biologically, physiologically, are mostly identical to us, right? Like you go back forty thousand years, and they we haven't changed really. Like our physiology has not really changed. We're utilizing Stone Age technology in you know the modern age, and. <clears throat> It's interesting because we would, I think you would, there's a tendency to look back at these people and think that they are primitive and that they are, they were dumb, you know? And yeah, if you brought one of those things, one of those uh, people back in this modern time, they wouldn't know shit about wars or technology or phones or any of the medical shit that we know about, but they had an in, like intense in depth understanding of their local environment. The, they knew all the plants around them and what they right. were, what was harmful, how to use them, right? They knew they had amazing navigational skills of like giant swaths of areas that they would move around um, and, and different seasonal things. They understood the, the environment, the weather better than, than like as a, as a tangible thing because their survival depended on it. Mm -hmm, you know, like mm -hmm. I, think, I think one of the big things that we lost in the modern age is, and it's, and it's hard to bring this one, like it's hard to make a case for this, right? Because it sounds like a bad thing, but we lost survival. Like we don't, that's not something I don't wake up one day and I'm like, man, I sure hope I see a burger king on the way to work today so that I don't die or something like that's not, that's not a thing that we ever feel anymore on this well, like low key, low key survival you, thing. You hit the nail on the head, man. It's like, we have a meaning crisis disguised as a drug problem. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, as we, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, what could be more meaningful than like fighting for your life every day? Like every meal is going to save your life. Every, you know, every interaction could, you know, potentially, you know, uh, destroy your status in your tribe. So like every, the weight of every action is um, just completely like unrelatable to us in the modern cozy environment. Yeah, it carries more gravity uh, yeah. on like a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we, I, I we, think, no, go, go ahead, ahead, Brock. Uh, we, well, we like, yeah, like, and there's something to that, like, it's hard to advocate for that because it's like, yay, I'm glad we don't have like wars and we're not like constantly surrounded by violence. But that, that gave life this very like significance to it where you had to know things or it could cost you everything, you know? And you had to understand that every day was like a challenge. Um, and I think that there is something we have, like instinctual drives and tools within us that we used for those purposes that we are, they're still there. They're still in us. We are still those 
like like humans in the past are, were extremely violent, right? They really were. We love to try and like make these noble savage images, but they, there was a lot of violence in our past. And we had no problem doing in-group, out-group things where you would, you know, could potentially wipe out a group of people just because they were somewhat of a threat to you. And I still think a lot of that is contained inside of us, but we don't know where to apply it. We're just trying to like reutilize these to things where we're like, let's play a video game that kind of like simulates some of this stuff mm -hmm. or let's, uh, you know, go for a run and think about listening to some metal music and think about being a Viking on a ship or, and it's just, I think we're trying really hard to find something to utilize some of those drives that are still like deep in us. Have you guys heard of the book, uh, the comfort crisis? No, not at all. It, so it's it's this book about a guy who basically goes to uh, hunt caribou with a couple of other guys in Alaska, um, and and so like he's totally detached himself from the modern environment and he's just living in like a tent and just trying to like follow caribou and like hunt them and um and and I think like I think we I think there's a there's an issue with what is comfortable and what we find meaningful and also what we are wired to do in terms of survival. Like human beings prefer almost comfort uh, because it signals like a survival advantage as opposed to doing things that would be more meaningful and potentially make us happier but are less comfortable. And so like I, I think that's kind of one of the the issues that we're finding in the modern environment, like despite the, despite the mismatch in environments, we are kind of cognitively aware of the fact that if we were to do things that are less comfortable, if we were to go camping more often or, or whatever, we would have maybe richer, more enjoyable, more fulfilling lives. Um, but there is this natural like draw to just kind of be comfortable and lazy. And of course it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. Like if you've got your basic needs met, why get out of your comfort zone? Like, I, I just think it's the calories, right? I think it's really funny that motherfuckers are still writing books on this. Like Henry David Thoreau <laughs> wrote Walden Pond, like 1854. And like the central, the central tenets of his arguments were the same exact thing that like, Oh yeah. Like, Society is industrializing, and we're moving away from the things that you know brought us true meaning and joy. And the solution to that is to get reconnected with nature. And it seems like every couple of cycles of like upheavals brought about by industrialization, by you know the rapid approach of finance capitalism, you go through like crests and nadirs, and eventually you kind of have somebody squeeze out some sort of like manifesto saying that oh shit, like but like what if we like went outside more and. And I, I suspect the further we get away from like that point of genesis and like enlightenment that whatever like caveman hit when he decided to like draw something on a wall, the further we get away from that, the more fucked up we're going to be because <laughs> Brock, you put it very, very eloquently. And I think I'm going to rephrase this a little bit. Stone age wiring, 21st century like realities, right? Like our, our – amygdalas are still functioning with the understanding that we're going to protect ourselves against uh you know a a wildebeest or like a cougar or something but we're sitting inside our loft apartments in the suburbs of a given city x y and z so there is this disconnect and i think that's correct and i think that's an important thing that we've said almost every single episode with 
you know, varying thematic backgrounds, right? But at the end of the day, we still have a unique problem to our current circumstances where people are dying because of drug overuse. We haven't had this kind of problem on the scale in the United States before. This is a very like modern phenomenon. And you could, you know, we could talk about the synthesis of drugs have changed, supply chains have changed, but this is something that is happening now that did not happen in the late 19th century under Thoreau, that did not happen in you know the the 50s and the 60s there's something unique about our current moment that is contributing to this very specific phenomena and the the question i guess i'm trying to pose is are, are is our lack of understanding of the issue causing it to kind of happen and, and grow out of control or is there something else that that we're missing here yeah, no, I, I think I think that exact. I think it. I think it is an underlying. On that note too, um, I don't like ascribe to any like specific philosophy. Like I'm this, or sure. um, but <clears throat> I'm a big fan of Stoicism. I'm like a huge Stoic, and Stoic uh, is all about the idea that a lot of times, um, you know, your um, anticipation of things is what actually causes you the most amount of pain, rather than the actual thing happening. Like thinking, worrying, and stressing about losing your job is worse than literally losing your job. And they talk about how you should expose yourself to uncomfortable situations so that you know you're fine. Like an example of, and this is always a weird one, people come to my house, <laughs> is behind me is my my mats right there that's rolled up that I just rolled up a bit ago. I don't sleep. So my wife and I, we sleep in separate rooms because my wife is an extremely sensitive sleeper and I am like a thrashing maniac at night. <laughs> I like awake the whole time. And so we, we sleep in different rooms and I have my room, but I don't have a bed. I sleep on a, like a, it's like on a Japanese floor mat, right? Uh, like a tatami or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I started doing it because it was a stoic principle for me where I used to have a bed and then I would just every, every so often, like probably once one week a month, I would just sleep on the ground. I would just literally like throw a blanket on the ground with a pillow. And, and the idea is that you, you put yourself in these positions to go, I can sleep on the ground. That's not that bad. It's not a bad thing. If I ever get a scenario where I have to sleep on the ground, like I'm just, I, that's how life is now, I'll be fine. And you expose yourself to these like more uncomfortable, kind of like the comfort book you were talking about, right? Um, these things. And you realize there's something almost inherently rewarding of knowing that about yourself. Like I don't have to always be in this comfortable thing. And Stoics often say like, it's okay to seek out comfort. You can still have those things. But you should know that you don't need them. They're not essential to your survival. They're not essential to your well-being. And in some ways, they provide you, like seeing the other side provides you a better perspective of that. And then to your point, too, back to your point, um, if I was going to try to characterize this all into a single thing, right, which is never a great idea to do that, right? Like it's a huge complex issue of our society and everything like that. But I think one of the biggest things that is like the underlying cause of this is chronic stress. Chronic stress is a very uniquely human disease. And in my opinion, and this is what I studied in grad, like in my graduate work and stuff was chronic stress. Um, and in my opinion, chronic stress is the number one cause of disease worldwide. I think, hmm. I think you can take a lot of our mental health issues and a lot of our diseases and you can track a tremendous amount of them to this chronic stress thing. And the interesting, interesting thing is, is our stress system has a bad rep now, right? Like it has a bad reputation. You talk, you talk about stress and you almost never talk about it in a good way, but our stress system is a good thing. It's something that none mm -hmm. of us would want to give up. Right. Um, acute stress is like, if you're, you know, if you're uh, a, a zebra hanging out in, you know, some African grassland and you're hanging out and you're eating and chilling and 
hitting some grass and then a, a lion shows up, right? Your stress system kicks on and it like, it elevates your heart rate. It releases blood sugar. Um, it shunts and prioritizes uh, blood flow to your large muscles. Um, it makes you more alert and stuff because the idea is that I got to get the hell out of here. I got to run. This thing is going to kill me. And the difference between me living and dying right now might be how much I can push myself to get away from this scenario. Hmm. And so a zebra, this thing happens, zebra immediately boom, runs and just sprints away. Maybe one of your buddy gets, you know, taken out and then you, you know, run and then you go to a new area where you're safe and you're like, and then you just go back to eating grass and chilling, being normal. Like that's, that's an acute stress. Response. If you looked at it on a graph, it would be like all these things happen and then woof. Right. But humans have the amazing ability to metaphorically bring that lion into our lives at literally any point. And it's the thing is, is like, it's, it's doing the same thing. Like if I was eating whatever, an apple on a grassland and a lion show up, I, right. I'm running, I got to sprint to get away. But then when I'm laying in bed at night and I'm thinking, oh my God, am I going to, am I going to be able to have, you know, is my relationship going to fall apart? Is my job going to like, it does the exact same thing. My heart rate goes up, my blood sugar spikes, my blood is shunted to larger muscles. And so we have this amazing ability to do this. And it's a very human, uniquely human thing. And I think that our modern environment ticks away at chronic stress in every kind of capacity. And again, I, I know we always come back to this, but I think that's one of the underlying things of capitalism specifically, because capitalism, one of its things that it literally consumes as a resource to make itself continue to grow um, is need. Capitalism mm. has to keep constantly resetting. The, like you're, like all of our needs are cared for. We are all in America. Most of us, not not really, right? Like some people don't have access to food and stuff as much as they need in the healthcare and all that other stuff. But overall, we have access to clean water and food is pretty cheap here, and so we can figure that stuff out, right? But capitalism and and and, and the modern world has to re keep. You know what? What's the? What do you need? What? Do you, and they they do that. They sell us this stuff like oh. You know, it's Christmas time. Are you sad? Maybe buy a Lexus with a giant red bow on it and then everything will be. And so you just keep getting inundated with these things of like, I'm not what I should be. And like, I live in meritocracy and I'm not as successful as my friends are. And so I'm shittier and I'm. And so you just live with this chronic stress. And I think that's what starts to push us to overeating or playing too many video games to the detriment of your life or drug use, especially. Um, I think one of the big underlying things of our drug use is that we are just overwhelmed and we don't know how to, we don't know how to, um, like healthy, like find a healthy route to compensating for this. Cause a lot of things just don't make sense. Like mm -hmm. dealing with chronic stress is a very complex issue and it's a day-to-day -day thing. And it's a lot of lifestyle changes and it's a, mm -hmm. a lot of self-awareness mm -hmm. and it's so much easier to be like, I'm just going to take an opioid that'll just literally shut those pathways off. So that when the lion shows up, I'm like, whatever. <laughs> so th that, that's an interesting thing that maybe you can expand on a little bit. Do you think kind of in the work you've done in your own research, is there a deep enough understanding of stress within the medical community? As in when, when a student goes through med school, how, like, how much time do they spend actually looking at stress and stressors and its immediate impact on somebody's physical health is that understood as a um a, a great problem within the you know general practitioners community for instance that's a great question um i would say 
just from my like understanding of it, right? I would say that it's definitely becoming much more, right? It is becoming a thing that the doctors are absolutely recognizing as a very, very underlying thing. But I mean, our under, like our, um, cause there's a difference. And I think that's kind of what I was really interested in this topic today about with drug use is there's a difference between something that's like people like look at and they're like, oh, this is a thing. And the normalization of that thing, you know, like we've known about depression for a long time and doctors mm -hmm. and clinicians and stuff have known about depression for a while, but it's only, I'm, God, I, I mean, this might be, I don't know, like, I feel like it's only in like the last 30 years that we've really been taking it actually kind of seriously, where we're actually saying like, no, 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 depression, like people aren't just sad, going for a walk doesn't correct that, like people are fucked up when they're depressed. And this is like a thing that we need to all acknowledge and work towards and all be open about and communicate about like, man, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm having a bad time. And we need to be able to like talk about that as a species, you know. And I think that chronic stress is peaking out, right? It's coming into that thing where people are seeing that like our lifestyles are stressing us the fuck out. There's a guy, um, uh, Barry Schwartz wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he talks about um, how in our modern age, uh, we have so many choices for things. And like, it feels like a good thing, right? Like it feels like I want choices. I want uh, to be able to choose all the different stuff that I want for my and customize everything and make everything. <laughs> But realistically, data is showing that it's driving us nuts. Like when mm -hmm. you go to the grocery store and you're like, I want cookies. I'm going to go pick up cookies at the store. And then you walk into the cookie aisle and there are literally 9,000 cookie choices. You need it. Like, you're like, I guess I should make like an Excel sheet. Like, what is my priority of what I want from cookies? If there was one cookie there or two cookies, you could go, I don't want that one. It's gross. It's got raisins in it or something. <laughs> right? I want that one. Uh, give me that cookie. And you're going to be happy either way. You're going to do cookies fine right? You just wanted sugar, whatever. But like having to see 50 different options of cookies and decide what you want, like maybe in that moment, it's not pushing you over the edge. But when you have day after day, a day filled with that, that decision of I have to make a choice. I, I like, I don't know if you guys have like the decision paralysis when you sit down with Netflix, right? And you start looking through and then you're like, oh, oh yeah, this, I'm going to watch the same show that I've seen a thousand times because I don't, I don't want to sit and try to rate. It also makes everything um, feel worse in comparison to, because not only it's like, uh, I have a whole thing. We could have a whole nother episode on this concept of modern dating, because I think Tinder and all <laughs> of that, right? Because it devalues every other choice. You're like, you look at a person and you read their thing and you're like, oh, you got this stuff. And you're like, I'll take a, I'll give a shot, but just know person that I don't know anything about you're compared to, 200 million other people that I've swiped through that I could potentially go on dates with. And it just devalues every choice that you make because there's like a hundred ones waiting. And so every show has to perform for you because you're like, I don't know, you remember like growing up at the time, like when you just like had TV and you'd like turn USA on and then like halfway through a movie and you're like, fuck yeah, this movie's great. I don't know what happened at the beginning, but now, like now every movie is competing, every show, everything is competing for our constant mm. attention. And so it just devalues everything that we do, and I think that well, choice it, it also it also devalues the, the 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 options themselves in the sense that you know it's a race to the bottom to be the most attention grabbing to the widest audience possible to maximize ad revenue or or whatever revenue, uh, and ends up being like worse. Like you know, like you, you could yeah, like twenty years ago you put on USA, maybe Top Gun is on or like some some cool movies on, and it's great. 
and now like it's all shit pretty much you know like what happened to move the, the film industry Dude, quite frankly like i'm not trying to like do a thing whatever people i listen to modern music i work out i listen to fucking you know this stuff that we listen to is of justin bieber and shit but we cannot deny that is these are the same songs that are being made over and over it's the same chord progression it's the same beat <laughs> it's literally some of them are written by what the same two guys right like yeah, dr luke yeah. and max martin shit. and and it's because it's a formulaic thing where it's not designed to be good music. It's designed to just get in your head and make you do a thing for a second. And then you listen to it 50,000 times. And then you're like, I never want to hear the song ever again. There's a reason why Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin stay in the test of time because they were making music that was meant to be. They just put music out. And everybody was like, holy shit, that's good music. And, you know, we kept listening to it. Now music is designed to sell pepsi and to do this thing and it's like a whole different purpose of it right and so yeah i agree with you like they're it's all just creating these like auction things but i think back to that that original point is that we encounter these constant decisions we encounter this constant thing and these feel like good things like i don't think anybody would be like oh i want there to only be two cookie choices you know like i i want to live in a world where there's only two cookie choices but your brain wants that your brain doesn't want a hundred cookie choices you know, th there's a level of irony to that because there's like a, a saying that's repeated that the Soviet Union was brought down because there weren't enough choices for like sausages at the butcher. Um, <laughs> where like they go they go to like the meat store and you just have like the sausage or something like that. Yeah. And when it came to consumer goods, the Soviet like model for a planned economy wasn't able to accommodate for the the needs of uh, the population writ large, which created a scarcity mentality, but more so it was the knowledge that in the West, in the United States, you had you know, the aforementioned aisle of like 60 different cookie types that ultimately speaking bred all that resentment. Um, and it's often, you know, kind of the, the stereotypical joke that, oh, like the Soviets were like without style, everybody was wearing a like, great potato sacks as, as they're like state issued. Um, uniform they're all dating the same state issued model of girlfriend like all that kind of stuff but i, I mean could you make the case that a lot of this it, it's less about kind of a paralysis of choice maybe more so a anxiety associated with comparison where yeah okay like i'm getting the chocolate chip cookie but i know that you know my neighbor two streets over living in like a bigger house is getting like the higher end chocolate chip cookie and the constant frames of comparison between your status versus the status of those around you. And because it's being defined now, you know, by the parameters of consumer goods, you're always stressed because you're trying to, um, compete with somebody else's signifiers of status. to some and, and if I can piggyback on what Andre just said, you know, th does that beg the question, you know, is social media the most dangerous drug? of all Ooh. in the sense that you know if, if comparison is a thief of joy then what what do we have here yeah like the data has shown that uh, people are consistently happier being the richest person in a less rich neighborhood than being the poorest person in a rich neighborhood like that just that difference it could be the you could have the exact same net worth right but if you are the if you're living in the rich neighborhood but you have the smallest house and the crappier car than all the people driving all the nicer stuff versus living in the, the less nice neighborhood, but you're the rich person. You got the better house. You got the, that is the top tier thing. People just inherently want comparative, comparative stuff for us is such a big deal. Like it's such a big societal thing. So I agree with you that like a lot of it's gotta be centered around, you know, like us, um, 
not not being able to like i don't know like um <clears throat> not being able to find the significance in just having these things inherently right like you just don't find a value inherently in them the you need you need to know that it's doing something better for you or in in the societal thing or uh that it's giving you some kind of like status stuff is such an underlying thing for us that we don't always like especially as you get older i think you start to want to decrease that need for that kind of thing of status or something. I don't know. I feel like I have anyways, like where I've tried to like really manage that about myself where I'm not doing the status things, but, but it's still something it's still like, if I lost my status, I would be devastated. You know, it would be such a humiliating thing for me. If I just like, everybody was like, no, that guy's a dumb piece of shit. Look at him. And you're like, ah! <laughs> like status is still such an important thing for all of us. And so I, I think you're right. Like the more choices we have on those things and the more some of that stuff has, it just, it's hard to identify with, like, I think too, like when you have all these things too, like all these choices and all these amazing stuff around us, it also internalizes it too, to be like, like when you are sad or depressed or dealing with some kind of issues or whatever, and you can't understand why you look around and you're like, I have fucking everything. Like I have, ev I have more uh, stuff available to me than like a king had 300 years ago. You know, like I, I, there's nothing I lack. And you're like, so why am I, what's wrong? Why am I upset? Why am I sad when I have so much stuff? And this, you didn't even internalize it. It's just like, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I am. Mm -hmm. And I honestly think that's where a lot of the, it comes back to the drug thing, because I think drugs are one of those. Some people just get into drugs for all kinds of reasons, right? But I think drugs is one of those things that like you start to get into sometimes when you just have tried other things and they just didn't work. And you're like, what could I do to help make me feel something to feel better? Like, obviously these things around me aren't doing it. And so I think some of the, the choices and statusy things that we have well, like that let, are just making let's us talk about Brock. Let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, drugs and that's just when we say drugs, I mean, let, let's expand this this word right like we're talking about cheetos we're talking about doritos uh you know andre mentioned porn video games caffeine sugar yep. like all this shit could be categorized as a drug using that term broadly um and it it, it th these are all like hyper normal stimuli right that you just would never find in the natural environment and like what does that do to our dopamine system etc like could you say um the act of trying to create a more and more pleasurable experience is almost self-defeating, you know, in the sense that um, you're raising the baseline of what you need and the activities that drive you um, are kind of junk food equivalents of what they used to be in the past. So mm -hmm. is there is there some sort of self-defeating phenomenon occurring with with us making kind of cheaper more accessible dopamine hijacking things in society I, so that's such a great point um one of my favorite things to talk about when i talk about like drug and addiction and, and the abuse pathway and stuff is the concept of tolerance in your brain right and we all kind of like i think people have a vague understanding of what tolerance is and like how it, it moves into an addiction pathway but like tolerance isn't just some drug related thing it is a it is a thing that is a compensatory mechanism for your brain to manage again homeostasis right it's a it's a it's a huge component of homeostasis in your brain and basically the way that it works and this is anything sugars video games porn you, you meeting someone right 
what happens is when you first get excited about something, like anything, any of those things, right? You eat something, you get, have it, you get this thing, right? Um, let's say you meet somebody, somebody, right? And you have that moment where you're just like, you meet this person and you guys are talking, you're staying up late and you're texting and you're having that thing, right? You're connecting. And like what's happening is in your brain, your, your motivation, you're literally releasing roar chemicals. They're like causing this to be like, just yeah, the roar chemicals are up here. And I'm like, yeah, I love this. Every time I think about this person, I'm just, wow. And that's awesome. Like we love that. We are all addicted to those feelings. They're amazing. And they are just like the best, right? But the problem is, is your brain subconsciously, it doesn't like that. And the reason why is because your brain is managing eight trillion things. Like I said, mundane shit, you know, your oxytocin levels, your levels. How much iron do I have in me right now? These are things that we consciously don't give a shit about. I, God, I can't even imagine if I had to like maintain my own calcium levels. Or some shit like that. <laughs> and so my brain is doing all this stuff in the background. It's just like, you know, it's like when you open your computer and it's like, you see all the things that like the, uh, what are the like little like task manager or whatever, and showing all the million things it's doing in the background. Like your brain is doing tons of shit where it's, it's keeping all that. And when you take something like dopamine and you just <laughs> dopamine isn't just a reward chemical. It is a, it is associated with memory retention. It's associated with movement. Um, and so you use it for tons of other things. It's not just reward. And so when you're making your dopamine levels, like they should be right here and you're, you're putting them up here with whatever that thing is for you, you know, playing video games, you know, seeing this new person. That's not inherently a bad thing. Your reward system is meant to have these extreme things, right? It's a motivational system. So it's like, yeah, go hang out with that person that you really, your part, they could be great for you. You want to stick your genitals in them, right? And so you just do this whole thing. But the problem is, is over time, your brain goes, oh, okay, buddy, I can't, I can't have this level of dopamine all the time. I have like, I, every time you do that, you're setting your phosphorus levels in weird ways. You're, you're making your breathing rate change to weird levels. And your brain is having to compensate going, Hey, I don't need, you know, 40 breaths per minute right now, buddy. Like we got to take that back down. And so it starts to basically work against your own motivational and reward system. Right. And it does that by a bunch of different ways. It'll like, like physically, it'll take your cells. You have receptors on the outside of your cells where like things like dopamine attach and they cause the effects that dopamine have in the actual neurons, right? Your um, brain will downregulate those receptors. It'll take them away. It's like, hey, look, too many, this is happening too much. So they will start to remove those receptors on the outside so that now you need more dopamine. This is, you know, the addiction pathway. You need more cocaine to make that happen, right? Um, and so it'll move some of those away and we call this tolerance, right? It's basically your brain trying to compensate for a dis regulation of your homeostasis by going, okay, I don't need that much dopamine. So mm -hmm. chill the fuck out. And so you're, you start to is see that, this person. Brock, is that evolution's way of addressing diminishing returns on like a pursuit of a thing? I, I think so. Yeah. Cause you can't, you can't just love something and do it to the detriment of everything else. Right? Like that's just not a good survival skill to have, you know? Um, and so I think in some capacity, our, our body, and it's also just the, um, well, like the collateral of running an extremely complex physiological system, right? Like everything has to be in balance. And like also, and I think we talked about this before, but like humans, this is one of those concepts that I think as you get older and, in, and you know, like, I don't know, more self-aware, you have to understand that humans aren't inherently made to be happy. That's just, that's something every one of us wants, but your body isn't designed to keep you Yay! Loving life all the time. That's just not what it's there to do. 
And so we want that, right? We subjectively want to feel good every day. No one wants to wake up and go, all right, it's, I need a good shitty day. <laughs> you know, like I, I need to offset my good days. I should have a shitty day. None of us ever want that, but like your body can't, it's not there to do that for you. Right. And so I think in some ways, those things, that tolerance system is set up so that, like you said, diminishing returns, right? So that we don't do other things at the detriment of, you know, all the other things that we need to be caring for and all the things that your brain needs to be caring for. And so you can insert any of our addictive things right now that we're focusing food, video games, and especially drugs. And they all play into this system where you are trying to game. You're trying to game the system, right? You're trying to be like, nah. well, yeah, I, I think you actually said something really, really important, Brock, that I did want to emphasize again is that, is that by nature, the way that our body is structured, the way that our neurochemicals kind of relate to one another, we are not supposed to be in a constant state of elation or happiness, right? At best, you know, we'll get neutral with a couple of bursts of fuck yeah, uh, within like a given time frame. You talked earlier that our a lot of our responses that, that that kind of manifest in what would be seen as detrimental behavior, addictions, and whatnot is is a direct correlation to the fact we're living in a civilization that is not in line with our nature, with, with our internal chemistry. Is that one of the reflections of our current civilization that we've built up? Is this expectation? that's put upon us that we do always have to be happy, that there isn't enough discussion of, hey, you know, it's totally okay sometimes to be neutral or less than neutral, right? That it's totally okay to have bouts of depression, that, you know, even our conversation that we've had in the past 45 minutes or so, everything is about like, well, how do we treat these things that people feel, you know, the anxiety, the depression, the, the insecurity that we feel, but could there be a greater emphasis on, hey, all of this is natural and all of this is a phenomena that is necessary to human life as it stands? Like, do we need yeah. a greater emphasis on just the regular nature of being sad? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think we need to normalize just being that it's okay to just be a shitty human being sometimes. <laughs> okay, all right. You I know, like that. that we, that we're just like that. Like we are, we are just these things that we don't have to always be this Hallmark movie version of whatever we see ourselves as, you know, like right. we all want to just wipe all the bad things off of those, uh, of these people and who we are and stuff. It's, you know, like, like celebrity culture and stuff. And we look at these people and we're like, what they, they cheated on their spouse or whatever. And it's like, yeah, of course they fucking did. Everybody does all these fucking things. Um, and I think that it's weird that we, we just always constantly set up, you know, stuff to like try and counteract who we are just at our very, and it, that doesn't, I'm not trying to say a fallacy of we, we should like be happy with those things or whatever, but we should acknowledge that we are fallible people that do mm -hmm. this stuff. And depression is a part of our existence. It probably always has been. Um, and, and so these things, like it's part of the, it's, it's honestly part of the, this stuff, like chronic stress and depression and mental illnesses and, and, and the reward issues are part of like, um, there's a, a Norwegian philosopher, uh, Peter Zaff. Uh, and he talked about how having, he, he was an anti-natalist saying that humans are <laughs> fucked up and should die off. So we should stop reproducing. And he said that consciousness is a double-edged sword that you, 
you grasp to wield and understand this amazing stuff about the world, but you also have to turn it inwards to yourself and to knowing that all the shitty things and did analyzing your own thing, your own mortality and your own place in existence. And it's, it's maddening. Like he thought like it was a mistake that conscious human consciousness was, it's cool. It's cool that we got to this level, but he's like, but it's fucked up. It's a fucked up thing for us all to have to live with. <laughs> we can do this to ourselves all the time. Leave I, I want to, yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm clear. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, I want to double down actually, Brock, on um, on what you and Andre also touched on in, in that we're not, you know, designed to be happy. Um, you know, we're designed to survive and reproduce, and and so I think one, of, I, I really think that's one of the take home messages for people here is like you you are not supposed to be happy all the time. And one of the other things that you mentioned, Brock, was um, that the anticipation of pain is usually more painful than the actual thing itself. Well, the, the inverse of that is also true. The anticipation of the reward is typically more rewarding than the reward itself. And so yeah. another take-home message related to the fact that, we shouldn't, that you shouldn't expect to be happy all the time is that try to pursue goals. And actually, the more distant the goal is and the more you can kind of incrementally approach it, you know, that might be a way of almost like hijacking um, – or, or not hijacking, but, you know, kind of almost getting around that thing and having a higher baseline as you approach the reward, if, if that's what you're seeking, you know? Um, so, so just, just, uh, my two cents on that, but yeah, no, I like, I, um, first of all, yeah, research has shown that anticipation of reward is actually considerably more rewarding than the actual reward itself. And, um, like, um, I think, Oh man, I just lost my, I lost my train. So here, here's a, here's a quick example that I, I forgot to mention, but, um, you know, the, the podcaster, Tim Ferriss, the self-improvement <laughs> yeah. guy, yeah. you know, four hour work week, four hour. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what he does is apparently he sets vacations like years in advance and he just gets really excited to go on them. And like, it's just this little, you know, constant stream of, of dopamine in a sense. <laughs> so, so that's just like one practical way. Uh, oh yeah, do it. no, that's, I think that's chaining that out and understanding that is a huge, I think growth point as a human, right? Getting older and understanding that, that like, you don't need everything right this very second. And like, um, like you were saying too, with like humans aren't, we aren't, we aren't really meant to be happy and stuff. And I think an understanding that like, it's okay for you to feel certain ways. And that like, these things are inherent parts of who we are. Like they make us like there's offsets, right? Some, some things about being able to have chronic stress pushes you to do some things that you enjoy about yourself, right? But also have the consequence of detriment to certain things like that too. An interesting uh, thing is like uh, schizophrenic people, right? Are when we think of like people that are like really struggling mentally with certain things, schizophrenics tend typically fall into a large, like a big part of that thing where we think of like, oh, these people are, you know, like really mentally aberrant a lot. Um, they think about things differently and they struggle with things more. And they are, when you look at the stats, they are 1% of our population, which is a massively huge percentage of our population. I mean, it's like one in every 100 person is schizophrenic, has schizophrenic hmm. tendencies. And when you see a, a massive thing in the population that's been retained evolutionarily for this long, it's like, why would that have existed? Like things don't, 
don't stay in a population like that if it's that detrimental. And research has shown one of the things that they've shown is that like despite the fact that evolu- that it looks like they aren't fitting into our deal as much or our society or they struggle more with you know keeping jobs and things like that, they fuck a lot. Like, at the end of the day, <laughs> they are having a lot of kids. Whatever thing with schizophrenia comes around with it pushes them to have a lot of kids. And and sometimes it's just that, right? Like like you said, we are sexual machines meant for this thing. And so when you start to look at your reward thing as a different thing than what we want it to be, you can find a more, I think, re- realistic approach for what it should actually have and that you shouldn't always have to be happy and fulfilled all the time. Like fulfilled is such a, a stressful thing to try and walk around feeling all the time. Yeah, in, in the in the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, he makes that distinction between the remembering self and the experiential self. And I think that's a useful perspective here too, because what what you do when you're constantly on drugs is you're almost trying to optimize for the experiencing self, but that comes at the cost of the remembering self, which is the self that I think recognizes how meaningful your life may mm-hmm. be uh, and how fulfilling it genuinely is. And I think our society is just way too overwhelmingly focused on the experiential self at at the devastating costs of the the that goes to your self. like the the pot, the meta crisis thing you guys were talking about with that of just like these seeking out short term gains constantly at the detriment of our entire society like we are just I, I'm teaching about climate stuff recently and you know when you teach it to students that haven't really been exposed to this that much they're just shocked at first where they're like why aren't we doing anything like, <laughs> we know we all know we all know that <laughs> And it's like, yeah, but you need oil companies, executives of oil companies to to cut their own pay right now to invest in some of these things that are going to exist that are going to help us 50, 100 years from now. And like, you just don't see that attitude. People go, they don't day to day, they don't think about that. They don't care. They're like, I want an extra beach house. And so then they just keep these same policies or they make worse ones, whatever. And so we're all kind of working toward our own demise because we are just thinking about tomorrow and next week and not how this is going to affect us in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or our kids well, or grandkids or whatever. That's a, that's a great way to discuss some of the perverse incentives that we have currently uh, when it comes to pharmaceuticals um, uh, and, and, and kind of other drug, I mean, even marijuana, like let, let, let's talk about that. Like what are some of the perverse incentives in the drug industry that are um, kind of exaggerating the, the problem, which, we, as we've discussed, is based on a host of other issues, but but there are also just kind of these systemic perverse issues um, that are compounding things. So, so like, what are they? I So with drugs, man, drugs are such a, uh, like, an interesting phenomenon. I've seen people use them for, you know, whatever motivators and things that people use them for is um, they do come with like heavy consequences, right? And I think a lot of time when you're trying, and that was kind of what I wanted, the message I wanted to take was like ethical drug use for this, right? Because I, everything has an unethical and ethical version of it. There's just, there's just, you know, nothing is inherently bad. And a lot of people love to look at that video at the beginning, right? And, and fentanyl use and stuff and go, oh no, no, this is bad. This is just this phenomenon in general should have a big red X on it. And, but I think there's ethical use for both ways, right? And so a lot of drug use does come with certain consequences that, um, you know, we use to compensate for certain things that are in a long term, not not good for us. 
But I think that if we can um, normalize like some of this more drug use stuff and, and not not that I'm advocating for people just smoking weed all the time and doing that thing. That is there are trade offs that are negatively impacted with those, you know, especially the amount of weed that people smoke and stuff. Um, but <laughs> but um, living in California has really awakened me to T- you know, THC. So I, I read THC potency went up from four percent to 15 percent over oh the past God. decade. That's so. part of the, the thing, too, is like we've been using drugs for thousands of years. But in the past, we didn't have the technology to make drugs what they are now, the way that we do everything. Yeah, and like synthesize them to still, yeah. Yeah, a human, uh, such a human trait. There are so many things that are just like specifically human things. And what a, a human thing is, is to go, hey, I like that thing. Let's find the underlying root thing that we can distill from it. Like sugar is a great example. If you have, if you've ever like, if you've ever seen it, like a sugar cane plant, right? Like these big, they are these massive fibrous things. If you want to eat a bunch of sugar, right? From that kind of setting, you would have to sit and chew through a shit ton of fiber. It would take you a long time to get through it. Humans were like, that stuff tastes delicious. Let's take it and refine it and get it the, the, the powder of it, right? Like coca leaves too, from cocaine. We, Dude, we would uh, it, we would all be giga chads if we were doing that. Our jawlines would be <laughs> yeah, like biting through the same. Uh, indigenous groups in South America have been chewing on coca leaves as like a form of like almost like coffee mm-hmm. for a long time. And you know what? In that form, it's fine. You chew on coca leaves, and it just it is like coffee. It's like a caffeine type deal, right? You just get and you're like more motivated, and you're like, all right, time to go to work, whatever. But humans were like, oh, hey, there's some kind of chemical in those leaves. Let's take it and refine it and distill it into the worst possible thing. And then just take it straight so that it just goes right to our brain and we do it in the bad way. And I think that one of the things that I want to I really want to see in the more modern age of us viewing drugs as less of a, um, I don't know, like a, a thing that we can you know, it could be good or bad or like a recreational kind of thing. And more as the use of like more of a prosthetic kind of example. Like for instance, we consider in our modern age, certain things that you have that are like, if you have a certain problem with some kind of like body part or like your vision and stuff, we correct those things. Like we, if you can't see, like I can't see, if I take these off, I, my vision sucks. And sometimes mm-hmm. I get that. I'm like, wow, if I, if this was a natural environment, I'd have glasses or whatever. Like, I'm not that seeing stuff that great. Right? And this would just be me, normal. And so, but society goes, no, 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 you need to be able to see. You drive cars, you, you know, you interact with certain things. You need to be able to see well. And so they compensate with stuff like this. Hearing aids. Even if you lost an like a hand, and if you could afford it now, we can make a fully functional, amazing prosthetic that can probably better than hands, right? In the future, we're going to make like cyber hands that'll do all these crazy things. And so we consider that to be an essential thing. But I think that with our modern environment, just making us all fucking nuts and Mm -hmm. like pleading certain chemicals in our brain and stuff, all these things over time, I think that drugs should start to be more normalized in a way of looking at them as a prosthetic compensation, right? Where we're like, look, my environment is, is, is making me deplete my goddamn serotonin so much that I don't, I don't, and I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to make my serotonin system be more healthy and better. And so we are, I can take this thing and it's like, yeah, cool. Now that helped get you more in a thing that helps you do the things you need to do and stuff. The problem that makes drugs so bad and the way, one of the reasons that it's gotten to this thing where people like, and, and let's be honest, like, yeah, we're using more drugs than we ever have before, but they are still 
mostly seen as bad. Like this is America and this is the largest, we use drugs more than anybody. And they're still bad here in America, right? To some degree, but like other countries, you can be imprisoned for life for smoking weed or, or even like, I think Thailand went like, like you can go to, you can get killed, you know? And, and so we are still not an age where there is a normalization of drug use. And I think that once you start normalizing a subject, then, it, the, then the actual conversation can move to a more complex, complicated discussion where we can start to go, okay, let's, let's start finding drugs that have less consequences where we don't, where, you know, when you smoke weed all the time, like let's, what can we do to try and make a, a, a less potent strain of weed that like has some of the offsetting stress kind of things that we like from it. But also you don't want to just sit on a couch and just meld into the damn couch like that. And I think that once we start doing that, we can start to create drugs. Like imagine a, a world where you could have drugs that like help facilitate memory retention. You take a drug and like you can, you just, in that moment, you can, you have better memory retention, right? So you're like studying and you're getting more out of it in that in, like impactful moment. Or a drug that like helps you socialize better. You go to a setting. I mean, alcohol has been that for thousands of years, but it's, it comes with so many heavy consequences. Imagine a drug where we could try to isolate something and you take it. And like now in a social setting, you're much more open to communicate with others and to listen to them and to care and to emote and stuff like that. I think there's so many, there's so many things that we have access to that we just, we won't discuss. It's like out of the Overton window because we're all just like, well, we can't talk about that because drugs are ultimately bad. Right. So, and I don't think what you're saying is, yeah, we should go and legalize, uh, you know, heroin or we should legalize crack cocaine, like, you know, open the floodgates, baby. It's a big party on the streets. I, I get what you're saying is, you know, the, the, these drugs kind of trigger certain receptors in your head. And if we have that institutionalized and researched, we can kind of create these at an at need basis. And I, I think part of the reason you very accurately said that, yeah, the, the, the pushback that uh, you're always going to get when you have those kind of conversations, it's always going to be informed by video clips like we started the episode with, right? With, you know, zombie like individuals roaming the streets, kind of a dehumanization of, the nature of addiction, which we've broken down um, throughout, throughout our conversation. But I, I think on principle, what you're saying is correct. But there's a couple of stages we need to resolve before we get to more of like a maybe sterile production of narcotics and narcotics of drugs to meet individual needs, right? What prescriptions would you have for the immediate problems we're facing now, right? For you know, we, we've talked a lot of case studies. Let's talk about, you know, Portland's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, in 2020, they, again, passed Measure uh, 110, which decriminalized the, the possession of certain amounts of drugs that, you know, wasn't quite as effective on the surface. You know, people are complaining about Portland essentially becoming an open-air drug market, but there's a lot of compounding stuff, right? There wasn't enough financing for it. The, the programs that were supposed to sustain it with treatment options weren't funded appropriately. But right now, you know, you have a clear-cut issue in the case study of Portland, Oregon, where drug usage has increased, drug deaths related to the kind of integration of fentanyl into the drug cycle have increased at a proportional level. What is our step here? Is it continued decriminalization and, and, and staying the course? Is it making everything illegal and never talking about it again, which, you know, clearly that's not anything productive that that could happen based on our current conversation brock what would your immediate prescription be for this situation if you had the reins of power 
Um, <clears throat> so Portland is a great example of that, right? It, it hasn't worked. Whatever, whatever is going on with what they're trying to do isn't functionally working because they are having a massive crisis with Finn down there. <clears throat> that being said, though, I think the underlying motivators or like the underlying thing that they were trying to do, I, I still do kind of believe in. Like, I actually am kind of for decriminalization. And it's not because I think, oh, yeah, woo, everybody should just be able to do drugs. And that's part of freedom. And it's more of a offsetting drugs from a criminal, like a criminal, um, like jurisdiction to a mental health jurisdiction. Right. If someone, if there is a guy that is in a gutter and they are on heroin and they are fucked up and their whole life is trash, that is right. not to me, that's not a criminal issue. That is a mental, that person is having a crisis. And, uh, and a more empathetic society would view that person as somebody that needs help, not right. somebody that needs to be locked away. Right. Right. I understand Precisely. it also does come with desperation and people are willing to violently do things that they might not normally do to get right. drugs or to get money for that. So it does come. I'm not trying to pretend that it does not come with with crime issues and things like that. It does. But I don't I don't think the overall you know use of drugs and the, these these like big amounts of this stuff is, is really specifically about. Um, you know, as a criminal activity. And so I would agree that I think, I think, and I know these are like buzzwords that are easy to throw out. Like, oh, we need to improve our mental health system. Right. And we need <laughs> a better lifestyle. And nah, nah, nah. Yeah, sure. And that shit's hard to do. And, and we're all, everybody, even the most healthiest people on the planet that all have all the things we need, all of us are still going, Gah. like, is this what we're supposed to be doing? So, you know, I mean, what are some of the most drug uh, people that use the most amount of drugs, like career-wise, are mm -hmm. doctors, Indians, mm -hmm. people that mm -hmm. prescribe it. They have mm -hmm. a huge epidemic with with the drug use, right? I and mean, they're the people that are literally studying and, and prescribing these things. And so, um, but I think I think doing things like decr decriminalizing drugs and trying to normalize, right? Um, and and governments coming out, and, like you said, if I was in power, right? Governments coming out and trying to help normalize these things and make them a discussion. Like, look, I, I get that you people feel uh, dissatisfied. And that you're compensating in all kinds of ways. Let's see if we can start to open, expand the conversation on this, normalize things. Like, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you a real, like, subjective example, anecdotal. Like, my dad is depressed, and he will never admit it. He's part of that old blue collar, mm -hmm. conservative. You know, I'll just be, uh, I'll be sad till I die, kind of, you know, mentality. And my God, if he smoked weed. It, he would be <laughs> such a better person. Be his whole life would be better. He would be. He would stop getting angry about everything all the time, and like, but he he'll never do it, right? He'll never do it because to him, weed is that's alien. That's a bad thing. It's a you know I can never look at myself and, and accept myself as a person that smoked weed. And while I wouldn't always advocate for shit like that for everybody, like oh people should just smoke weed more, it's like. Opening up that conversation allows people to have more tools at their disposal to potentially try things and see if they help during certain things. And so I think that normalizing, decriminalizing drugs to some degree and viewing them more as a mental health thing, even if it's not working in, in the short term for Portland and some of these other places, I do think that offsetting drugs from a criminal activity more to a mental health activity is, as a society, a better thing for all of us to view it that way, right? But there's a... Yeah, I mean, and we have a case study right in Portugal where in about, yeah. I think it was year 2001, they de decriminalized all drugs. And so in the first decade, heroin addicts dropped from 100K to 25K. Yeah. Um, they had the lowest drug-related death rate in Europe, uh, one-tenth of the UK, one-fifth of the US. Mm -hmm. HIV infections declined 90%. 
the cost was $10 per citizen per year compared to, this is over a decade, the U.S. spent a trillion dollars. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I think it's also important to note the, the the Portugal case study. Like this wasn't just like a hey, uh, you know, you can mm-hmm. now freely carry heroin with you. You know, it was a concerted effort on a national level that combined like public funding for mental health mm-hmm. treatment. It combined yep. education programs to you know uh, help people understand like the the cycle of drug use and and one of the most fascinating things we'll link the the article at the bottom of the episode i i think one of the most fascinating things is ultimately speaking one of the greatest successes that this effort in portugal had and like for the record it did start like moving the other direction because after the great recession in 2008 they had to cut funding some of these programs and now we're yeah, kind of seeing they, they cut so this is this is actually great <laughs> because so we have you know the first decade which shows all these improvements with a certain level of funding. And then they cut the funding from 82 to $17 million over like the next decade. Mm-hmm. And then shit just went bad. south. So but it's it, still it, not, it's still not as bad as mm-hmm. in other places where you haven't had this kind of concerted effort. But, it, but it shows your point, you know, that you can't just decriminalize. You have to actually aid right. it with additional right. measures. But one of the most important results, off. one of the most important results of this policy was the fact that, there was an increased like collective social awareness brought to the things that you're talking about with like if somebody's strung out in the hair on one of the street, that's not an individual failure, which I mean, agency is a thing and you know, what the fuck are you doing? Shoot up on heroin. But there is an awareness of like, okay, there is like a, a compounding series of factors that ultimately result in somebody choosing to shoot up and, you know, pass out in public with their pants off. And I, I, I think that is something which, if nothing else, like now this Portugal example is being pointed to because the funding got cut. Nobody really talks about that part. But like, ah, see, it failed. You know, people are still using drugs. But like collectively speaking, if even like the, the Portuguese boomer generation that survived through like the military junta and like the autocratic like Estado Novo, even if that generation is now able to be like, yeah, well, clearly somebody's just having like a mental health episode. You know, I can't imagine like an American tier boomer. And like Dallas, Texas, just like, oh, yeah, this is somebody who's got like mental health problems. That's why they're using drugs. But like the foundation of like raising that issue to the level of collective understanding, I think that makes the program already a success. The biggest problem is and, you know, they, the, the, the arguments against it that at least I've read online is immediately they point to places like Portland. They're like, oh, we'll see. Like Portland tried to do it like and they're clearly not succeeding because, you know, opioid overdoses are up 500 percent or some shit. Like we're not seeing anything here in the states on like a national level. Like how different this effort could be if like we we recognize this, you know, kind of like with the Nixon administration, the war on drugs. Oh my God, you know, fucking all the first ladies made this like the priorities when they were in office. But like if we just recognize this as like an issue, like an actual national security threat, and it's the only way we can think about things in this country, and we channel the appropriate resources into it, like this could very likely, yes, on the surface, you know, decriminalization, whatever, but like all the other support mechanisms in place, I think we could resolve this like stat, like no problem whatsoever. Yeah, like a, a, a compassionate society, right? Like we, I think all of us genuinely, I think most people want a compassionate society, a society that, that you feel like is there in some capacity for you. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be some welfare state or there's all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things you can make for it. But I think ultimately people just want 
uh, a society that feels like they're accepting and that they're okay and everybody fits into it. And it's fine. You can do what you And things like looking at drugs, the war on drugs and stuff like that. <laughs> it's, such, it's just such a bullshit. <laughs> uh, like... Um, what is it? What is it? Uh, when like the logical fallacy where you have a straw man, right? Yeah. Where it's just so easy to be like, oh, this, d- these chemicals are a uh, poison to us. And it's like, no, no, no. We are using those things because there is stuff inside of us that is making us sad and feel empty and lonely and whatever. And the more we work on those underlying things to make a society that people feel like, things are okay and it's okay to be this type of person. And, and that we're all, I don't know, like one of the biggest things I noticed from uh, when I initially studied drug research to now, especially post COVID mm-hmm. is that people it's, it, it is, is the normalization aspect of it where people, it is so much better for you to be able to say, I'm depressed, you know, whereas at even just 25 years ago, that wasn't an, as much of an acceptable thing for you to people just like, Oh, come on, you have everything. Everything's good for you. Why are you sad? Go for a walk. And it's like, now you can come out and people like get it to some degree. Lots of them do. Right. And so I think we're all trying to just start making sense of this. And I think drugs should be more under that thing where it's like, I don't know when you see a fentanyl crisis in Portland, maybe it's not specifically about the fentanyl fentanyl obviously is an easy route to it mm-hmm. you know it's it's the virus that is taking advantage of whatever's happening there but it isn't and, and, and to your point brock i think the fact this isn't just happening in portland like again like you know far from i think the public conscious that that in america that loves to you know point on liberal cities and kind of flag them as like institutional failures i mean the fentanyl crisis and the opioid epidemic extends to like it's all corners of the country yeah like good old red blooded Republican states. Yeah. yeah. And Portland's just an easy one to go. Well, they tried and it failed. Right. So fuck right. them. Like, like, it's so frustrating to have that attitude. It's such a defeatist. It's like Jordan Peterson drives me fucking nuts. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pulling the shit out. And every time his argument is, it's just too fucking complicated. Just fuck it. Fuck the thing. Climate, that's too, it probably doesn't exist. But even if it does exist, fuck it's too hard. It's like, these are such defeatist attitudes to these things like okay portland it maybe it didn't work maybe whatever they did you know like i think we talked about this last time when i was talking about socialist things right where i i, I identify as a socialist person does that mean that i honestly think every that all the tenets of socialism are that's what's going to solve all our shit absolutely not i just want to fucking talk about it i want to start absorbing some of the policies that we think might work in some kind of socialist thing and go hey does it work oh it didn't all right let's try something else but that's what a smart, self-aware, intelligent, compassionate society does. And we just, we look at the fentanyl crisis and we go, look at those fucking liberal idiots and fentanyl's just wiping them out. And it's like, but they're trying, they're trying stuff. And even if decriminalizing things isn't the way to go or whatever, right? It's at least I want just to try stuff. I want to, you know, try to like view, change, reframe our perspective on things, I think is a big part of where we're going to actually fix the underlying things of this. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, and this is kind of what we discussed in the last episode of the Meta Crisis. But we we are in need of a cultural enlightenment, right? And that could be the driving force for implementing a political system that is more conducive to addressing all these problems. But I I, I do want to kind of so let me see if I can come up with a a take home message that makes sense that we can all agree on. Like we want a society where 
drug use is not something that compensates for, uh, you know, a, a lack of other things in your life, but it's something that hopefully enhances your life. It, it is an enhancement as opposed to making up a deficit that, in theory, we should um, have a society that addresses mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I think that's probably the way to go. But then, but then I think about things like, you know, marijuana, which, you know, again, it's kind of like now it's obviously seen as a relatively mild recreational drug. Um, but looking at some of the research, um, you know, uh, we, we know, you know, if your brain's developing, it's going to have an impact, right? Like that, that's been, I feel like pretty well established. Same thing with alcohol. Um, and really the age limit, if, if you're going to look at it from that perspective, you could say the age limit should be raised to like 25 or whenever your brain's, if you want to be conservative, maybe even 30. Um, but sure. It, it seems like it seems like it could have an addition, like just like alcohol does, even even for adults, um, th- there are these kind of harmful side effects. And I think, you know, we have to be careful when we are promoting any sort of drug. Um, we have to be honest about, you know, the the costs. Um, and, and so how do we how do we find that balance? Because, right, you know, we went from the war on drugs, you know, marijuana was like categorized, you know, the same as like some other much harsher drugs. And now we've gone to this, we, we, we've swung to the other side where marijuana is like just this absolutely fucking harmless thing. But honestly, from the research I've done, which I haven't looked into marijuana like this since I was maybe 20, and it, it, it is not as harmless as you would think. And so... No. How the fuck do we find this balance and how do we even, you know, evaluate whether this is actually good for me? If marijuana, for example, does lead to, you know, memory impairment and, and some other issues, how, how would you, you know, Brock, if you were trying to evaluate a particular drug and you see some side effects, what what's a good kind of heuristic to try to figure out if it's something worth doing? That's a interesting um so on that point uh too like i i think that like we're not it's we've we've talked a lot about here in this talk like about like the old the old good old days of us surviving and all this shit you know and those times suck too right like there were, t- there were tons you know your, your babies what like died like you have 12 <laughs> children and like eight of them died right and so there's you know shitty things about all these times and we're not putting this back in the box, right? Pandora's box is open. None of the, this is this is life. This we've done this. It's happening, right? And so I think drugs are a good way of like just having some more tools at our disposal, right? And viewing them that way. But like you to your like your point of yeah, they all they all come with trade offs, and it's important. First of all, education is an extremely important part of this whole thing. I teach uh, whenever I get the chance to. I teach drugs at uh, you know at high school teaching. I teach high school and. I teach this as a concept and I have to be very careful because I don't advocate for drug use because little snot nosed teenagers are fucking always trying to get you to validate their drug use. And I'm not <laughs> going to do that. I'm not going to be like, yeah, it's perfectly fine for you to do these things. But at the same time, I also think that it's extremely important that they understand that, you know, um, these things have consequences. And so it's important that, you know, you go into this knowing. So starting that weed smoking weed habit or whatever and doing it, it's going to give you certain benefits to something that may offset stress or depression or 
uh, whatever in your life. But it does come with a cost, right? It, it does increase the, tr- the chance of cancer. It does increase um, uh, like memory loss, right? Like you do have functional memory loss of this. And it also is, it is not addictive in the same way that like heroin is addictive in the sense that it, t- it makes these massive like physiological changes to your brain that like you now need heroin day to day and your body will freak out if you don't have it. We doesn't inherently do that like the way that heroin does, but it's still, you are dependent on it right? You take someone that smokes weed every single day, all the time, and then they don't smoke weed one day, their life is very different that day. They mm-hmm. feel different. Their whole body is working differently. And so it, it does make changes to that. And I think you have to decide as a responsible person, the same way that you do with, you know, if somebody brings you a donut, you know, cause it's all, it, I hate the fucking slippery slope fallacy for every goddamn, you know, like <laughs> someone brings you a donut and it's like, you, if you in that moment eat a donut, it's perfectly fine, right? It's re- it really is. Your body can handle that much sugar. It's fine, whatever. But if you make a habit of like always eating donuts when people bring you donuts, then you have this donut habit. And now you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Right? It's, it's slippery slope of whatever kind of thing, right? And so I think to some degree, people should view that as just part of the arsenal of I have to make sure that I'm falling within responsible use. You know, does that make sense of well, some of yeah, the things yeah. that I do? No, it and makes my drugs sense, should but... be a part of that. Yeah. It, it, no, it makes sense. And the donut example is funny because if you're not going to decriminalize like drugs, then I mean, then should should you criminalize donuts? <laughs> you know, I mean, because the sugar and the fat content in that, like that, is more addictive than than weed. And look at the obesity epidemic. That's worse than. I mean, you can make a strong case. <laughs> oh, yes, That's worse than the yeah. side effects of weed. So, like, you know, it's it's again, it goes back to like what we mean by drugs. And- but but we've <laughs> also like even outside of like you know donuts, yeah, okay. But like our relationship with alcohol, for instance, is like a totally like I, I mean any TV show fe- like features alcohol placement to a certain extent. I mean, Christ, how many alcoholics came out of like Mad Men? Right, we're like drinking whiskey and like brooding over yeah. your desk at work. It became like an aesthetic, basically. But we're yeah. totally okay with it. I mean, yeah, like some states have like stricter regulations on who can sell alcohol, and you know, you have to do this weird song and dance, like hey, I can't really buy hard liquor on Sundays or something like that. But objectively speaking, alcohol historically has like decimated civilizations. I mean, like the poor Irish and the Russians. Like, what what, what has it done to their respective cultures? Right, but. We're, we're still okay with it. You know, we still go to bars. We drink with people. We, we, it's totally socially acceptable for young people to, you know, go party and wake up hungover. Like, we're fine with that. I mean, we have, like, advertisers making commercials for the goddamn Super Bowl next week right now. That everybody's waiting for with bated breath. Like, oh, my God. Like, what's Bud Light going to do? But yeah. objectively speaking, if you take a lens at it, I mean, it is still technically, like, a, a harmful, toxic substance that people get addicted to and that ruins lives. But it's... For some reason, we apply a higher level of agency to that. I think because people we don't. Go, what's that? People go to rehab for alcohol abuse, like mo- so much more than they do for other harder drugs. Like right. it's one of those things. I mean, you see celebrities that are doing all kinds of drugs, but then they go checked in for alcohol abuse. Yeah. And it's because it, I think a big part of it is because it's normalized. It feels, especially when you have this like dark side of drugs. There's there's drugs, and then there's drugs. <laughs> And it's just all fucking drugs. It's just drugs, right? <laughs> and so, you know, like, I think when we start looking at it like that, like, alcohol falls in the drugs. It's murder, yeah. right? It's yeah. drugs, right? We all, we can, you can fuck it up, but overall, and it's like, 
it's a drug. It's the same damn thing. And it, there's ethical use of it and there's a non-ethical use of it. Right. And so I think a lot of our drugs should just become more in that thing where it's like allowed. Cause like, if someone comes to you and says like, Hey, like if you had a, a real friend, like a real scenario where a friend came to you and said, Hey, I've been using heroin recently. Like you're going to be, but like, think about the, the way that you would feel about that. If you really care about this person, right? Like you're going to have like a, uh, you know, and I think that there, we should have drugs that are, we all recognize are problematic, right? But that, when you look at that person taking heroin, you're not immediately just like, oh, what a piece of shit this guy is now doing this shitty illegal thing or whatever. Like you would be concerned about that person. Like what's happening to you? What's going on with you? Like what, you're not going to just start yelling at them for using heroin. You're going to like, hey, what's going on? Like why? And it's not, the thing you're treating isn't like, hey, like what, did you fall in? Did you, someone just stick you with a heroin needle and now suddenly you have to have it like you're going to be like what are the things that are causing this to happen and so i think that we obviously still need to have like a a, a stern discussion kind of to your point too of, of like drugs are still bad like they still they do have bad things they take consequences but like imagine if you could like take a drug and like i don't know give it like a video game you know and like it's like a it's like a like a, a thing you click and your character gets this new imbued power and it's like, you click this thing and your life bar goes from 100 to like 90, right? And you're like, oh, I, I lost life on that, right? But the trade-off is you have so much less stress, you know? So like that 90 now is like a better 90. Like you get to enjoy the quality of your life or something. It's obviously never going to be that black and white or whatever, right? The things sure. are going to be like that. But there mm -hmm. are trade-offs. And I do think that in some ways there are certain, certain things where you're like, I'm willing to, I don't know, I'm willing to take on the risk and the consequences of what that thing might have for ultimately. And then there's just certain drugs like fentanyl that just aren't ever going to be that. And mm -hmm. they're just, they're the, the final boss of, you know, where that, that seeking drug thing ends up, you know? And so I think it's so convenient for us to like that video, to look at those people that are in the late stages of all this tapestry of shit that's gone wrong for them. Those people in that video, their problem isn't just inherently trank or fentanyl or whatever the fuck that they're on. Yes, that's what's making them look like zombies. But overall, they have made choices and their life have gone. And again, whether they had agency, so much agency over it or not, or trauma or whatever the hell, their life has led them to this point. And they are in a final crisis of shitty life, right? That, that drugs are one component of that thing. And it's the one that we focus on. We're like, that person's on fentanyl, fuck that guy. Look at all these terrible things that are happening in Philadelphia. And, and yeah, the drugs are part of it, but they are a component. They are one component of the whole thing. And so there, there could have been times where drugs might've been a beneficial thing. If you hadn't, I don't know, if you hadn't done this, that drug, with this drug or whatever. <laughs> drugs, like I, drugs, drugs are a symptom. Society is the disease. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I was thinking about this the other day because I think uh, a good example of this is, is Elon Musk. Like what more privilege could you possibly fucking have than this human being? And we can all see him degrading. Like you just, you're, <laughs> he is doing way too much ketamine now. And this is a billionaire that's doing this shit. And it's like, he's not even doing this like as a thing. Like this, there's an example of like you, he has all the money in the world to, to do whatever he needs for his own interests. And he's just taken a fucking horse tranquilizer and shit and just <laughs> fucking himself up on it. Um, so I don't know. I think. I think that the discussion of drugs isn't black and white, right? I don't think we should just all use drugs, but I also think that we should normalize the idea that drugs can still be a compensatory thing 
that they are okay for you to look into. I, when you, I you think know. that word. I think that word is gone. Like we can't use the word drugs. It's just yeah. it's, there's just too much baggage. So what's the new word? What can we use? Um, chemical prosthetics. Or <laughs> I like that. Make it sound. You know, make it sound medical. Make it chemical sound prosthetics. Yeah, we're gonna give you this this neurotransmitter chemical prosthetic to help you. No one would question. If you told my mom that she'd be like, "Yeah, I'll smoke this thing." <laughs> like if a doctor said some shit like that, you for sure. That, okay, sure. Um, but the you know the drug thing. We you're right. We 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 attach such weird things to, to names too much, and they just get they get lost in the process of the you know of what the actual thing could do or be for us. It becomes a phenomenon past you know the actual thing itself. All right. I think natural I think pause. That was, yeah. That was a beautiful, that was a, that was productive. Good, yeah. yeah. I always like the way these things like, you know, meander you know, and evolve. I have these yeah. ideas and I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys come up with some really interesting things for it. No, I, th I think I think your message is great, Brock. I think we do have to destigmatize drugs. I think we have to we do have to decriminalize it to a certain extent. You know, wh mm -hmm. whether that includes the hardest drugs, I don't know, but. Um, the Portugal case study does provide some hope in that respect. I mean, they're also like Portuguese. They they have the beautiful Atlantic coast. They have like public transportation. <laughs> I was the whole time. I'm yeah. like, they got some <laughs> other shit going on over there that might also be contributing. Yeah, factors. yeah. It's like, oh man, of course I don't need to like shoot up on heroin. I could go take a walk by like crystal clear blue <laughs> water and you know ancient architecture that's designed for like the average human. <laughs> Are the, you the saying that us like going to Applebee's can't compensate <laughs> right. yeah, in yeah. our lives? <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah, the rehab clinics in Portugal are like on the beach. There's like a bonfire, people playing volleyball, surfing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a brilliant episode, Brock. Uh, do you want people to reach you anywhere on your Instagram, Twitter, whatever? Any writing yeah, you want to plug, any anything of yours to advertise to the 220 people that, that we reach on a consistent basis. To, um, I mean, that's cool, though. I'm glad it's like really, it seems to be growing, you guys. Like, uh, the podcast has gotten really, it's gotten, it's going awesome. I like it. Um, uh, I don't have anything to promote, really. I mean, I'm not like, uh, to your credit about social media, too. I, about five years ago, I was obsessed with it. I mean, I was getting literally several hundred notifications a day and many of them i would check on and answer and reply and all the things right and i don't i'm not on twitter at all anymore and i don't i have an instagram but i barely look at it and honestly it has been such a good <laughs> for my whole deal i just and so i think covid really helped push that where it was just like i don't think people need to give a shit about what i'm doing right now i don't think they need to know what i'm eating um so I don't know, I've moved away from some of that stuff. So if people want to reach out to me, they can feel free to, like I do have an Instagram. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, they can always, you can find tons of shit of me online. My 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 first name has a, an E on it, B-R-O-C-K-E. So you type that shit in. I'm one of the only people on the planet that has that. So feel free to reach out or talk. I mean, I'm always <laughs> like into to chatting with, with people about some of these things, right? Um, I'm part of a, an, inst, uh, an institute we were talking about right before this started, like uh, my wife is building an institute for stress and resilience here mm -hmm. in uh, Northern California. And the whole idea is that we're trying to push a lot of stress research um, to make it more uh, normalized as a diagnostic tool for doctors to be able to say, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, because right now we, we have to turn it into something else, right? 
hey, this person's having a really terrible time and it's they can't like they they are having panic attacks constantly. Um, and you got to be like, whoa, their their thyroid is dysregulated. We can't just say this person's really fucking stressed and it is causing a tremendous amount of Ill, illness in this person. And so we're trying to make this more of a thing. So we have clinicians on site here. So I will say like, you know, uh, this is a big thing that me and my wife and, and the people around us are, um, they did a working on and trying to make more of a, um, I don't know, a normalized thing, right? Not, not so much the drug thing, right? Specifically. Although I will say we have, uh, we, we've been having talks with a group called MAPS, um, which is, uh, I always have to look at, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they are now like wanting to do some stuff with our institute and doing like some funding things with us. Um, and it's cool because like they're really trying to do some of that normalization of looking mm -hmm. at these. It's like it's not just, you know, deadheads sitting around a fire like <laughs> like these things can genuinely be used to help people have like turning points and trauma and therapy and stuff like that. Um, and so the second with the with, like, like you said, Levon, like just reverting this, like from this drug term to seeing it as something different, something that is a useful tool for us. Um, so I would say that like, you know, any, anything like that, if we, we want to reach out or chat or something about that, like I'm, I'm all about that kind of thing. Well, it's always good to have you on, uh, yeah. hopefully we can bring you back when we're at like millions of, of listeners. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll do, we'll do little check-ins periodically. Uh, like we said, you're kind of our. Our, our go-to point of contact with, hey, what the fuck is going on in America? Um, so next time we see like a, a spicy viral video uh, filed under evidence of society's decay, uh, we'll, we'll be sure to run it by you. Maybe we can like piggyback on like Joe Rogan success and just be, I'll come on. I'll be like, you guys tried DMT. Maybe that'll like, <laughs> you guys should we'll, just we'll, do some DMT <laughs> about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take it live and, and see what it, where the conversation goes. Really, really just Hunter S. Thompson, this whole podcast thing. Like, oh, I love it. I love that. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks a bunch, man. We'll thank see you next you, time. Thank you. Thank you.